there are parts of the scriptures, uh, parts of the gospels specifically within the New Testament that, um, that are so dynamic and so profound in these stories that just reading them brings you to the edge of your seat. Just, just hearing the story makes you want to know what's coming next, right? This, this great dynamic storytelling skill, the drama. Um, so in light of that, I would like to present to you this morning the beginning of the good news, the entire New Testament, the first words that starts the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, we're doing this, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, sounds like Lord of the Rings, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerome. Oh, here we go. Jerome, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Who said Bible names can't be exciting? I'm, name, name, I'm, I'm probably not going to have any other kids. Somebody else name your kid Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations, all in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. You had one job, Matthew. Like, couldn't you be a little more like John? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And light came into the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. That's drama. That's drama, Matthew. This is the genealogy of Jesus. I don't know if your kids have ever had a project, if you've got kids that uh, they have to do the family tree, or if you were younger in school and you remember that and you had a project where you had to kind of break down um, your family tree and do the research and and look it up. Um, But here's the thing. Often this part of the Gospels, the first words of the New Testament is quickly glossed over. And the reason, by the way, that we're starting to talk about this is that we want to take a deep dive into Matthew for the the coming weeks and see uh, who is Jesus according to Matthew. How do do we understand Jesus in this first Gospel? Um, But 
But anyways, what, what ends up happening is, even though it looks boring, and even though it's a whole large list of names, every family tree tells a story, right? Every family tree tells a story. You look back, and, and y- you know, you think your whole family was German, but your great-great-grandmother's name was O'Reilly. And all of a sudden, you're like, there's a story there, right? Or, um, or you know, you see that until 1930, your entire family lived in Mexico, but here you are in northern Delaware. How did that happen? Where's the story? There's something behind everything, right? Even a list of names communicates an important story. And in the Hebrew world, oh my, 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 in the Hebrew world, that is true in ways beyond what you could imagine. So, can we just geek out a little bit this morning, and then I'll tell you why I believe that it's relevant for our lives, which is really ultimately what we want to learn, um, what God might be doing in speaking to us through this. But genealogies are fascinating in the Bible. They almost always have an agenda, okay, Um, which may make some of you nervous because it's not always a historical agenda. We have grown up thinking that if you look at a genealogy and a list of names, you are looking at absolute historical data. But when uh, Hebrew writers were writing genealogies, often they were trying to tell a greater story. So yes, it was used for historical elements in some ways, but it was also used to communicate something, something deeper, frequently at times. This is why the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, both of Jesus, don't line up. Because the authors were intending to communicate something slightly different between the two. So, they usually are included to do one of three things. Number one, they use numbers of generations to communicate how, how important something is. Secondly, uh, they connect an ancient person to a contemporary person so that you can understand their spiritual importance. And thirdly, they embed a surprising character in order to bring attention for some reason. Maybe it's their faithfulness, maybe it's something else, but they want you to take notice. Often, especially in what we'll look at today, we see history mixed with theological importance. It was just a different way of approaching things than than how we look at it, but it was common in ancient Israel, okay? Um, This is where we run into problems if you think that your whole goal in life is to um, pick apart the Bible to make it all perfectly fit with itself in all of the other areas, okay? We have different writers with different goals, and the beauty and the inspired part of the scriptures is that it points toward an ultimate culmination in Jesus, And then it tells the spiritual story of a lot of different people, most of them super messed up, that God continues to work with. So so it wasn't considered odd at all for someone to be listed in a genealogy, even if that wasn't even the full bloodline. I mean, for goodness sake, did you notice that the final part of the genealogy says Joseph? (laughs) Yeah, Joseph ain't the dad, right? So you got a problem here because then all of a sudden you hop over to Mary, But Mary doesn't work to go through the bloodline because Mary was a descendant of Aaron, not David. And so you go through Joseph because that's one of the points. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. Um, But I I love the little little slip that happens all over the place here. But anyways, let's let's just say this so that if you've got like some weird thing rising up in you right now, I can put you at rest. Um, It's similar to you maybe you having your kids call your best friend aunt, right? So that this, this friend who's called aunt or aunt or whatever your family pronounces it, you know, who's your best friend and your kids call them that. That's not because of the bloodline, it's because of the significance of the relationship. Okay, so, so just let that, it's not a perfect parallel, but it gets us going somewhere. Okay. So two questions. What's the story being told? 
in these first 17 verses, and how might that impact us as disciples? Each grouping in this story begins with a key figure or a key event. The first verse that we have is this the genealogy of Jesus who is identified as two things. Number one, uh, well, actually three things. The Messiah, that's the big deal. Then the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so what you get, the first portion that you get, is you get this story that comes and emerges from Abraham. So the first guy that is Jesus' descendant that's listed, um, or the descendant of, that's listed, is the father of not only all Jews in Genesis 12, but the father of all nations. The idea that this was the, the person with whom God began a new movement, but made a promise that one day that movement would stretch to all peoples. Okay? So the author's intending us to see that the promise that was made to Abraham is working its way down and eventually is going to find fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is Abraham's son. Son was a very large term. It could mean descendant in any way. So secondly, we get David. And after 14 generations, we get to this this guy David, who you know, David's a king. Um, And the son of David occurs 10 times in the book of Matthew. Really, really big deal. David is the greatest king. And and the idea of connecting Jesus to David is that Jesus is royalty. Jesus is the promise of the throne of David. Uh, The kingdom will never end. A kingdom. So, So Abraham is about a nation and a people and a family. David is about a kingdom that will never end. So we get father and king, right? Which is the two great images of God. God's kingdom where God is king. God's family where God is father. So we get both of these in here that, that Jesus is the culmination of, right? Super cool. Oh, fun, fun, fun. Uh, here we go into the new facts, but wait, there's more. We should do this like a little infomercial. I'll keep saying that. I'll say, but wait, and you say, there's more. All right, so there's 14 generations from, uh, to David, but also from David, and 14 more generations after the exile that gets to Jesus. So you've got these three sets of 14 generations. The interesting thing about that is Hebrew words um, are also have numerical value. So the name David, do you remember some of you when we went through this in Revelation? We talked about this a little bit that every, all, all names and words in Hebrew have a, a number notation to them. But the word David, the name David, has a, a numerical value of 14. And so there's this little thing happening. I'm not joking. I'm, we're, this isn't like conspiracy theory stuff. This is, this is real. Um, Matthew here is trying to connect King David all the way through even the trauma and the exile to clearly show that Jesus was king. So not only is he a descendant of David, but we see the David through line come 14 generations up to David. 14 generations from David. 14 generations from the promise of David to the fulfillment in Jesus over and over and over again. It's intended to show so clearly through all of it that Jesus was following and always meant to be the king. He even takes, Matthew even takes three generations out He even removes three generations in his list to make this work so much. It's not scandalous. Again, happens all the time when the writers are trying to make a theological point. Going a little further, and this is, we're just having fun here, and then we're going to switch gears. But one, one more fun thing to see why a genealogy like this tells a story about Jesus, and we shouldn't miss it if we care about understanding truly who Jesus was and what the biblical authors thought about who Jesus was. And this is some great work done by uh, theologian Tim Mackey, who is behind the Bible Project. So if you're familiar with the Bible Project, watch their videos. Um, Really, really, really helpful. Great scholarship. Um, But anyways, Matthew didn't just make 
uh, numerical adjustments only. He also adjusted a few letters in some of the names. So this is really cool. If you like geeking out, oh, there you go. Um, that's your little, little fun, fun joke. But if you, like, if you like geeking out, then check this out. Um, this is the NIV's version. And uh, unfortunately, no, no, let me, let me just tell you what happened first. So he changes the, uh, the, the writer, Matthew, changes the names in the original language of two names that were pretty commonly known in terms of the genealogy. People would have known this genealogy. Believe me, everything connected to David's bloodlines and stuff, they would have, they would have understood, and certainly Abraham's. So um, in the, the actual names that we have of the descendants, there's two guys. One's named Asa or Asa, and the other is, um, is um, Amon, okay? And, uh, and what happens, all right, in Matthew, and the NIV unfortunately changes it back. So the original writing, instead of Asa, it's Asaph, and instead of Amon, it's Amos. Now, why does that matter? Unfortunately, I guess the NIV translators maybe thought it was a, um, like, like just a, people called them different names, maybe. So for, for consistency, let's, let's keep the same name. But the NRSV keeps the shift. So the NRSV shows Asaph and Amos. Now, here's the cool stuff. All right. So Asaph is known as one of the psalm writers. So in the scriptures, 12 different psalms are attributed to Asaph. And Amos was one of the most famous prophets of all time, especially according to the, the Hebrew people. He might be called a minor prophet, but that's just because his book was short. So, so anyways, Matthew is winking at his audience, and he's saying, not only is Jesus the ultimate son of Abraham and the ultimate son of David, the king, Jesus is also the culmination of all the cries of the Psalms for God and all the calls for justice of the prophets. All of it. And people would have gotten this if this was your world. You would have been like, dude, why'd they put Asaph there instead? And Amos, it was Amon. They would have understood this, okay? So there's, there's all this, this beauty here about Matthew kind of reminding us that Jesus doesn't fulfill only the royal hopes, but the hopes of the Psalms and the prophets. All things are ultimately moving toward Jesus. And Jesus will be the fulfillment of all things. So Jesus is the culmination and climax of all of Israel's history and the key moment. He's the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams. But not just the culmination, he's the beginning of something completely and totally new for the future. I mentioned that numbers are important. This is the last thing, and then we're going to get into the four, the four names that are really worth uh, what I think are most relevant for us today. But um, I mentioned 14, 14, 14. We talk about numbers all the time. In, the, in um, the Hebrew culture, seven was the number of completion, the number of perfection. If, if there was a concept for perfection in Hebrew, it was, it was embodied by the number seven. Seven days to create the earth um, or to create all things. Um, in the book of John, Jesus does seven signs and miracles, and his uh, resurrection is the eighth, the first day of a new creation. Right? So we get all this beautiful, cool stuff. So here's what happens. The writer clearly describes 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Each 14 is two sets of seven. So what do you get? You get six sevens till Jesus. And Jesus is the beginning of the seventh seven. Any Bible nerds here have a feeling of what the seventh seventh might be referring to? What's that? Infinity? Jubilee? Yeah. 
completeness, but historically also the year of Jubilee, where every seventh, seventh year, all debts were forgiven. And all land was given complete rest. And the people celebrated. Isn't this amazing? And so Jesus, you know, in the book of Luke, comes in and says, I've come to set the prisoner free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is all, it's so beautiful. So, so the reason I say this is because Jesus isn't just a nice central figure. He's not just a good prophet. He's not just, he, he is the culmination of the entire story of the Bible. In every single way. And he begins the celebration time. Okay, so, good stuff. But wait, you guys missed it. There we go, okay. Um, all right, but there's more that we need to explore. I just mentioned that um, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes, and maybe even more than that, because there's a detail here that scholars always pick up because it's unusual. And it's an all-male genealogy, and there's four women's names listed. Okay? And this is really, really interesting. I decided not to put the entire thing up there, but now I'm going to throw a few things up so that you can understand. And the four women that we're about to encounter, each of them, there's two different things going on. Number one, um, they're all foreigners. All of the women mentioned are foreigners. They're outsiders to Israel. And the second thing is that they're, they've all been involved in sex scandals. Um, and so, which is a, an interesting thing, but it tells us something more, right? So here's a bunch of non-Israelites that remind us that in Jesus' own family, in his own genealogy, are listed a bunch of outsiders, a bunch of people not from the right family, okay? And then secondly, in the midst of all of this, it's stories that are being highlighted, okay? Canaanites, prostitutes, Moabite women, many who would be associated with Israel's covenant failure and sin. Not by their failure, but by the failure of Israel's people to hold the covenant together, all right? And yet they are given places of honor in a genealogy like this. Places of honor. They are honored reminders that Jesus fulfills all of the promises that Israel has broken and that the family is way bigger than all of the assumptions would make. Um, Tamar is the first one that's mentioned. Her story is really interesting. We're not going to get quite into it because it's totally not PG. Um, but, but essentially, um, Judah has a son who he finds a wife for, and she's a foreign wife, which he was not supposed to do, okay, but finds a, a, a wife, and this guy was pretty wicked, and it says that, that because of his wickedness, he dies. We don't know how or why. God kills him. I don't know what to do with most of that. I don't need to figure it out, um, but that's what we have. So what happens is that the next brother in line would marry this woman to be able to give her a child, and the next guy, he says, no, I don't want to give her a child that she can attribute to this other, to my brother. So he refuses. I won't talk about how. And he refuses. And because of his wickedness, he also dies. And then Judah, father-in-law, says, hey, I'm going to promise to, to take care of you, you know, because if she doesn't have a husband, she has to be cared for by the family or else she has no means of moving forward. This was a justice issue. So he says, well, go back to your family for a little bit, and when my, when my son grows up, I'll give him to you. But he refuses to do that. And so he abandons her. So she eventually tricks him, again, 
can look it up yourself. Um, he, she tricks Judah into giving her children and fathering a child because she deceives him. And then when he, wants, when he finds out what's happened with this one woman and wants to put her to death, she said, you're the one. And he says, your righteousness is beyond mine. So we have these stories that the family of God includes those who have suffered with unrealized hopes. A lifetime of waiting, of being mistreated, of, of being used, and yet God continues to work through. So the story of Jesus the, runs right through this. The family of God includes those who have suffered with unrealized hopes. All right, next we get, uh, next we get Rahab. Um, which is a really interesting story. Um, a, a number of generations are skipped here. If Yeah, it's really, it's really hairy to connect these, but clearly the writer of Matthew wanted to put Rahab in here. And most scholars, there's some debate, but they think it is Rahab, the Canaanite woman, uh, who was well known for hiding the spies that came from Joshua and lying about it to protect them. And so we get this, this woman who was known as a prostitute but recognizes that God is powerful and doing something, ends up hiding these men um, instead of them getting killed uh, for when Joshua is coming in and doing all of this um, conquest stuff. Once again, the point of the story is that Rahab, this very complicated character, gets a mention in Jesus' bloodline. Okay? Rahab gets a mention in Jesus' a prostitute who also had this moment where she showed compassion and help to these people. And I look at that, and I think that that's really, really fascinating. And I think that one of the things that we might be able to understand is that the family of God includes the complexity um, of human hearts and lives. Like, this is getting messier and messier as we work through this thing. The people that are being told are, are moments that sometimes God's people would either rather forget or whitewash and only hold certain details and facts about. But over and over, we get that this story includes, God's family includes more and more complicated and beautiful factors that make us realize this is not as neat and tidy as you might think. This is not a story of heroes. This is a story of outsiders, of unmentionable moments, of rescue from the most unlikely of people. And so... So we, we continue on, and then we get the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth, when Ruth is mentioned, is a little bit more heartwarming. Um, Ruth is a Moabite woman. She marries an, an Israelite, but uh, he dies. And instead of Ruth going back to her family of origin, she stays with her mother-in-law and says, I know that I'm not one of your people, but I want to live like one of your people. And not only does she eventually become welcomed and accepted, but she becomes a great-grandmother of David, King David. Interestingly, there aren't a lot of genealogies told about David in his own story, and many scholars think that that's because of the shame of an outsider being a part of his bloodline. So there's more scandal. Okay, um, but, but here's the thing. Rather, this remaining with her mother-in-law and taking, them of, uh, taking the Israelite people as her own, she eventually is grafted in to the story. And so the family of Jesus, we keep learning, maybe the family of Jesus looks like foreigners who become matriarchs. <gasps> Outsiders who become leaders. It's so surprising. The story goes right through them. And then 
Finally, we get to my, what I think is the most significant part of this entire thing for us maybe today. And that is that when Matthew comes to Solomon, he mentions Solomon's mother, sort of, Bathsheba. If you know the story of David and Bathsheba, then you know that when David saw Bathsheba bathing and decided that he wanted to steal her for his own wife, even though he had many wives and women, that when he did that, and when she became pregnant, it led to a massive amount of scandal. She f- he found out about her husband and where he was fighting. He sent him onto the front lines. He ordered the rest of the army to withdraw. And Uriah, her husband, she's also foreigner. Uriah was a Hittite. Um, her husband is murdered because of David's specific scheming. A prophet comes and tells David the story via metaphor. David becomes furious. Prophet says, that's you. And at that point, this becomes the mark of David's greatest sin. This becomes the smear on the history of King David. The thing everyone would want to forget. So many of the Psalms are laments from David trying to repent for the, the evil and wickedness that he's done. And so, the story was known, but the author of this genealogy could have gone and just said, you know, here's David, the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba. And instead, what does he say? David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Don't you ever forget the pain and the trauma and the violence that was a part of this story. Don't you gloss over the shameful parts that you would like to forget when telling the great stories. Because God does not forget the moments of harm that have been done to the oppressed, but also, but also, God works in the midst of those moments. And so, so there's this incredibly, like, this stark reminder, it's so on the nose, it's so up front, that there was this scandal and this pain and the story of God does not divert around it. All right, so this challenge, don't forget it, we're being told, don't gloss over, don't don't start to think, right? Um, otherwise, you, must, you might just forget that this story is imperfect. Or you might begin to think that you are part of some perfect holy family and give off the impression that only perfect people are allowed in this story. Only perfect people are allowed in our story. But this is the story of humanity. The story of Jesus' family is the story of God working in times and in places and among all sorts of lives and finally culminating in something absolutely beautiful and perfect and new. So I think maybe something that we can learn here is that the family of God, um, it doesn't ignore the ugliness of its past nor the victims of its wrongdoing. This is where we must unashamedly acknowledge where the church has done harm. When we tell the story of God's faithfulness, we have to tell the story of God's faithfulness in the midst of all of the harm that the church has done all of the trauma and pain that Christians have caused in the name of Jesus. We dare not gloss over this. We dare not act like it did not happen. 
We need to acknowledge violence in God's name. We need to acknowledge lack of integrity among our leaders. We need to acknowledge antichrist behavior in the name of Jesus so many times over history and still. We don't ignore it. We name it for our own healing and for the healing of the many who have been harmed by it. Are you with me? This is incredibly important, friends. It is incredibly important that if we are to be a church that sees ourselves in the lineage of Jesus moving forward now as children of God, which is what the New Testament speaks to us as, we are the next generations of this storyline. Okay? We are the next generations. And if we are to be that, then we have to look at the whole story, look at the family of God, understand what is being taught by someone like Matthew, and say we won't forget the harm that's been done. Because until we acknowledge it, until we walk through it, we won't be able to write a better story. We won't be able to be the kind of people that Jesus called us to, that are healers for the oppressed, that are comfort for those who mourn. We've got to call it. And I think that this is an incredible glimpse of not being able to ignore it. So the family tree of Jesus is this proclamation that God persists and that that God fulfills and that God enters a world where people who might otherwise remain nameless get named, where hurt is not overlooked, but where hope always ends up winning out. Um, God has been using all sorts of unlikely people as a part of his plan. And Jesus will keep that coming, right? As we continue to journey into Matthew in the coming few weeks, however long we last here, um, you know, the rejects, the outsiders, the blind and the lame, the women, all of the people in this time and place who were pushed to the edges, the kingdom of God will go directly through them. Um, The opening words to the New Testament are profoundly anti-establishment about the people that God chooses to work through. Um, As Homer Simpson once taught us as he glanced at the Bible, I'm pretty sure it was a glance, everyone in in this book is a mess, except this one guy. That's the end of his quote. But he said it. Everyone in this book is a mess except this one guy. So the story is all about Jesus. It really is. And sometimes I think we try to go so relevant to our lives that we just need to sit and understand how beautiful this story is that culminates and fulfills in Jesus. And it's going to happen over and over again in Matthew. But even though it's about Jesus, it does have meaning and value for us. This is our lineage too. Colossians 1.12 not only acknowledges that we are children of God, but we share in the inheritance of God's kingdom. We are also in the Davidic line, spiritually speaking. We share in God's inheritance. But God's inheritance doesn't look like worldly wealth. It looks like the gift of life to be freely given, the gift of grace, the gift of love to be passed on and lived fully within. So, if this is God's family and so are we, And we have some really, really good news to take away from this overlooked genealogy of 17 verses. Um, We have a place in this story. Whether we have unrealized hopes, whether we feel complicated or messy, 
in who we are and in our struggles, whether we are an outsider, whether we have trauma that has been done to us, where we've been harmed, or failures where we have done harm to others and to ourselves, and whether or not we think we are worthy. We have a place in this story. And we are reminded that God does not only not avoid the complicated parts, but highlights them as a reminder of both grace and redemption. Highlights them as a reminder of grace and redemption. So Matthew's prologue helps us understand that Jesus is coming to fulfill the hope of redemption, not just for a people, but for an entire world. He's not coming simply to bring a truncated version of salvation over here, but complete salvation that includes dignity, honor, and redemption to the stories that are rarely seen or heard. He's at work in all of it. So I invite you today, friends, to have eyes to see where God is working through unlikely people and places, even deep in your own life, unlikely spaces that God might be at work, that when you look back on your story, you can say, huh, That's a detail I would not have preferred to include otherwise. But I think it was part of God's redemptive work in me. Um, So, Jesus is building his family and continuing the story through you. Amen. So Jesus, help us to, number one, just rest knowing that we are invited to be a part of your family without our pedigree being required, without earning it, just by being recipients of your grace. But help us to live in this legacy of love and care, even in the midst of the complicated moments, even after we've failed. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. And the fact that this does all eventually center back to you. And we can trust that your faithfulness is good enough even to cover our lack of. Amen.